Welcome to the first episode of Commonwealth Stories, the podcast that explores what the Commonwealth means to modern Brummies. Commonwealth Stories speaks to people from a host of nations, from Africa to Asia, from North America to the Caribbean. You'll hear the stories and thoughts of people from all walks of life, all with one thing in common. They have all found a home in Birmingham. So what does the Commonwealth mean to us now? How has it shaped the Birmingham we know today? And what lasting legacy do we hope the games coming to the city of Birmingham will leave? The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. In this episode, we'll be talking to legendary photographer, Dr. Pogus Caesar. I think there was a bit of a naivety that we would be accepted. A lot of people actually don't know what's, what does Commonwealth mean. This is the greatest opportunity for us to stand up on that world stage. It's a fantastic opportunity. You'll also hear from history teacher and Black Heritage Walks organiser, Marcia Dunkley. It's not a case of rewriting history. It's telling the balanced narrative, and there's a lot that has been left out on purpose. This is a country that has gone through a journey of cultural, racial, richness. We have to look at the positives of this and that we're all united. They'll be reflecting on their upbringings as children of the Commonwealth from the Caribbean. You'll then hear from student and activist Jaspreet Singh, a student from Punjab. He'll be talking about taking pride in heritage and his hopes for more critical discussions around the nature of the Commonwealth as the Games come to Birmingham this summer. I really hope, fingers crossed, Birmingham shouldn't miss this chance to have critical conversations. Is it just the wealth in just some hands and nothing else is common? Or is it a time where Birmingham can be a good place which can start harmonizing conversations, but with a critical dialogue and debate? I was born in Punjab, but I'm made in Birmingham. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Life. Dr. Pogus Caesar is a British photographer, artist and activist. Born in St. Kitts, Pogus and his family arrived in Birmingham in the 1950s, part of the Windrush generation. They brought with them hopes of work, housing and education. For Commonwealth citizens, England was the promised land, a beacon of prosperity. And as Pogus describes it, the land of milk and honey. But for many Caribbean families who arrived in Birmingham in the post-war period, these dreams soon faded as the harsh realities of racism and poverty kicked in. Pogus's work is considered an important visual record of black history in the UK. In 2018, he was awarded an honorary doctorate by Birmingham City University for his contribution to the visual arts. In the run-up to the Commonwealth Games, Birmingham Live's Nathan Clark spoke to Pogus about growing up in Birmingham, his career, his thoughts on the Commonwealth, its history, and what the arrival of the Games means to both him and the city. So you came to Birmingham at the age of five from St Kitts. Do you remember the move? I remember coming to uh, Britain at a very early age. Uh, we came by seaplane from St Kitts and went to Barbados and caught the ship there, or the steamer, as uh, it was called then. And I remember the journey... Uh, taking very long. I do remember Gibraltar 
as one of the stop-offs. I don't remember anywhere else if we did stay anywhere. I remember getting to either, uh, I think it's maybe Calais, I think, and then catching a ferry over to, again, Southampton, I think, uh, catching the train to Birmingham, and that was the first time I'd seen so many white people in my life. I hadn't actually seen so many people. Um, going on the train, of course, I'd never been on a train like that before. So that was very strange, seeing a lot of the houses with smoke billowing out of them. Uh, you know, I mean, I've referred to this in the past where it seems as though the houses were either on fire or there was something completely wrong uh, with them. Um, getting off the train at New Street, heading up to the first place that we lived in, which was 50 Kingswood Road in Moseley. And uh, then again, you know, settling into a situation of being a young West Indian in an alien environment. Uh, again, you know, the land of milk and honey, which we were all kind of promised. Uh, so I came with my brother and my father. My mother was here first. Why did your family choose to locate to Birmingham? I think the family located to Birmingham because it was seen as the promised land. England was the promised land, you know, part of the Commonwealth. So, you know, the Queen was our mother, so to speak. So everybody migrated towards the, um, you know, towards the motherland, which was England, with the promises of jobs, a uh, better society, you know, housing, employment, um, you know, education, all the things that they'd been taught that Britain would provide for them. Of course, it was very different when we got here because once the, the cold, which we weren't used to, the fog, which we weren't used to, and also the types of employment that they were semi-promised because in the Caribbean, you know, my mom and dad, they were kind of teachers. Uh, so when they came here, they had to do different types of jobs. So my mother went into, she became a nurse. My father worked on the railways. So that promise or that delivery that the Commonwealth uh, promised uh, never transpired. And I think that was a great letdown, not just for my family, but for a lot of uh, African Caribbeans or West Indians, as we were called then. How did you and your family sort of start building a life here in Birmingham? Were there any barriers that you faced in doing that? To be honest with you, I think there was a bit of a naivety that we would be accepted. Uh, but once we got into the system, and again, you know, just recollecting back, you know, going to school um, and seeing books with, um, you know, black people running around with bones to the noses, you know, with like a white man in a pot, um, and then, you know, a lot of the language that was used um, to describe black people, um, that was very difficult to take. But again, the education system, that is what they provided. And not just us as West Indians, but also for, you know, the, the British uh, children as well. You know, so they would refer to you in terms that they'd read in the books and also maybe um, the terms that their parents had used uh, against us. So I think for us, we sought friendship in not just people from the other islands, but also from, you know, the British people. And for me, I bonded more with the Irish children. You know, funnily enough, nearly all of my friends were all Irish. You mentioned that you, um, you sought sort of friendship and support from other members of the Caribbean community. Was it quite a vibrant community at that time in Birmingham? The community in Birmingham was very, very vibrant at the time. But interestingly enough, it was the first time that I'd met people from Barbados, St. Lucia, Jamaica, uh, Anguilla, Antigua, Montserrat. And every one of us had different types of way of speaking. So it was very difficult to understand, although we were all black people, 
um, but had very, very different ways of delivering words. Some of it sounded quite funny. Some of it actually sounded quite threatening because we weren't aware of, of that at all. But in terms of that kind of, you know, cohesion, um, we, had to, we had to bond together because, you know, as uh, you know, young black people, um, you know, in this alien environment, the only thing we had was ourselves. You spoke about acceptance and maybe not feeling accepted when you first arrived in the UK. How conscious were you of the issue of racism at such a young age? Um, were you always aware of it or was it something which you sort of unfortunately have to, came to learn about as you grew older? I would say, to be honest, I wasn't that aware of it as a young child. And I got called a particular name by a young British lad. And I didn't actually know what that term meant, but it was an older West Indian friend of mine who actually told me what it meant. Uh, then I got angry, but then he actually got angry for me. So we were very aware after that of the way that the, the British system was set up, possibly again, and I'll go back to this word about support and not supporting our aims and expectations, you know, this promise of the land of milk and honey, um, which was never there. Uh, I think a lot of West Indians as well, they just wanted to muckle down and just get on with the work. Uh, and initially only wanting to come here for a period of time and then going back to the West Indies. Uh, some people went back to the West Indies and some stayed. Some people found it very, very difficult, you know, leaving the West Indies, coming to England and all the benefits that England have. You know, don't get me wrong, you know, it wasn't this, you know, this kind of this great place where nothing happened. You know, there was a, a lot of ambitious West Indians who went on to do uh, good, good things. But I think the ism, and we go back to that kind of racism, that was something that was embedded within British society and still is to a certain point uh, today. Um, you know, maybe not so obvious. Uh, you don't get much of the um, writings on the walls and being called all the names under the sun, but, uh, you know, it's, it's an underlying uh, situation. So you grew up in Birmingham, still live in Birmingham now. Are you a proud Brummy? I think I'm a proud person from Birmingham. The Brummy thing, I've never really like that term, being a Brummie. Uh, I think I'm a proud black person living in Birmingham and also providing, I hope, some kind of support in how we can achieve, um, you know, trying to inspire and be inspired as well. Um, it's fantastic to see how the, the city has developed itself in terms of the building, the infrastructure. I just wish there were more, let's say, arts facilities and much more facilities for young people to go to. Um, I think there needs to be more art galleries, um, many more bookshops, um, and also I think much more after school or after university activities. But I think in, in terms of being a, a proud person from Birmingham, I definitely am that. Um, I wish sometimes that the city would kind of understand you know, culturally, what we're all bringing, because you see, once you throw us all together, um, respective of you know race, creed, or color, um, you know you've got something great which can happen. Uh, but any kinds of divisions within the city, um, it can always turn out problematic. On the topic of the arts, which you mentioned there, um, you took up painting in your early twenties. How did you start? And could you tell me a bit about? Uh, and I hope I'm saying this right. Pointillism. I always was interested in the arts. I used to draw in the backs of um, like cardboard boxes, um, 
you know, with little pens, do cartoons. And then in my 20s, I saw a documentary on Seurat and Pizarro, uh, French Impressionist artists. And they worked in this pointless technique. And I was just so fascinated by it. But again, being so young, I couldn't afford the brushes and the paints. So I used old um, <laughs> fountain pens <laughs> and quink ink. And I just started to, uh, you know, paint in dots. Uh, so that's effectively how I started. And then after that, um, you know, people started to get interested in the work. So I used to do craft fairs, um, you know, going to schools and teach pointillist arts. Uh, I had a stall down in the Bullring on a Saturday. And that's where I sell my pictures for about five pounds. So, you know, all of those, all of those things really give, gave me um, the quest to see how far I could develop in terms of my, my work. So after those, those periods um, of, you know, trying to understand what I was about, I then you know, started to get exhibitions in, in galleries and were asked to curate shows. So in the early days, like, you know, the 80s, you know, exhibiting like Leicester Museum and Art Gallery, Mapping Art Gallery in Sheffield. Um, um, and then late, of course, when Lady Diana came to um, the building where I was working, uh, the Cultural Centre in Hansworth, and she showed a lot of interest in my work at the time. And then at the end of it, uh, I was asked to present a work to her. That again gave me a big boost. Um, you know, again, you know, just, just a young young artist, you know, doing what I was doing. So again, that was another stepping stone. After a while with the pointillism, that started to affect my eyes. So I had to stop that. And then the photography took over. And the first camera I used was a, a Minolta 110 camera, going around the streets in New York, taking photographs. I came back to Britain, um, exhibited those. But while I was in the States, funnily enough, I was uh, in a bookshop in Greenwich Village and I bought a, a record by Gil Scott Heron. And then there was another book by a, uh, an artist called, um, or a photographer called Diane Arbus. And I was totally fascinated by the way that her work was really, um, you know, it was blurry, um, you know, it was out of focus, but the content was so strong. And because I'd always been, I suppose, encouraged to make picture perfect photographs. So I came back to England and I bought uh, myself a little, um, a little camera, a little um, compact camera, which I've used ever since. And, you know, all the photographs that I've taken uh, are with that uh, 35 millimeter camera. And who or maybe what did you take pictures of initially? I took photographs of everybody because, you know, what you can understand is that in 1985, when I started uh, working in television, initially on a program for Channel 4 called Black on Black, um, so, you know, I had access to meeting a lot of people in a lot of situations, so I'd take photographs there. And then the head of um, regional programming at uh, Central TV um, invited me and asked me to become a presenter on a series called Here and Now. So I did that then after that, then I worked um, and I became a reporter on Central News, then I worked on the Cook, things like the Cook Report, um, Tuesday Special, and uh, then in the early 90s, when they were changing up um, TV, uh, then became um, responsible for the multicultural output for Carlton Television. Then after that, went to the BBC in Manchester, working in Canada and Italy for them. And I came back um, to Carlton Television as a presenter and series editor on Drumbeat. So, you know, that was you know, how it's gone. But all the time, I was just taking photographs of all the situations uh, not just well-known people, you know, just ordinary people. Uh, but when you say about, 
you know, the celebrities. The celebrities are always, people are always fascinated by the celebrities, you know, so I photograph people like, you know, Stevie Wonder and Desmond Tutu, actress Julie Christie, you know, uh, Jesse Jackson, um, you know, just a wealth of all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. But the ordinary people are the ones that interest me the most because, see, famous people get photographed all the time. Um, you know, the ordinary person on the street doesn't, and, uh, you know, they're all people, and they all have something to provide. So for me, it's just about documenting what I see through my eyes. You did a lot of work around uh, documenting the lived experience of black communities in Birmingham. Why did you think it was so important to do that? I think it's important to um, document uh, societies, in particular, suppose the black people of Birmingham. It's what I saw growing up, and because there wasn't that many um, images to look at when I was growing up. I mean, they possibly were there, but I couldn't find them, to be really, you know, really, really honest with you. So what I did was just to photograph, go around the streets, photograph, you know, people that I knew, people that I didn't know, photograph houses, you know, people in different scenarios. How has the city changed since you grew up? More cranes. Many more cranes knocking down great old buildings and putting up these big shiny and glass things. I wish they wouldn't do that. You know, so that's one of my pet gripes. Buildings for me are part of the history, the fabric of a society. Um, I just wish that um, you know they would again, you know, invest much more in kind of you know um, utilizing the buildings that are there. Because if you look up, again, if you look up at the sky and you see some fantastic buildings, um, you know, as um, pedestrians we tend to just look forward now and again you should just look up and then you see um you know the most beautiful um artwork the most beautiful architecture birmingham is a strong you know it's a vibrant community it's a great place for people we're getting a lot of um people from you know all, all over the world who are coming here and settling here and i think in terms of you know as i say you know we're all part of the commonwealth and that commonwealth is you know, so provide the wealth to the common people. That's what you are. So you provide your wealth to the common people. You provide a wealth that everybody can benefit from, everybody can succeed from, whether in education, um, you know, employment, um, in medical, you know, health, the policing of the city, you know, that's another thing. Providing um, jobs which give everybody a chance to aspire. You know, we have a fantastic, you know, Birmingham City University there. And, you know, so many students are coming out of, out of there with um, you know, fantastic intentions of what they want to do in life. So if you can provide that backbone, then we have a uh, you know, great chance for providing um, uh, you know, people for you know, future generations to come out of the city and also to, uh, to make us proud. Mm, tell me a bit more about Commonwealth. Sort of growing up, did you ever think about empire and sort of the history around it? And is it something you think about much now? I think growing up, we weren't too aware. It was just a term, part of the Commonwealth, you know, the Commonwealth Games, you know, the Commonwealth, the Queen. I have to say that for a lot of us, we were quite naive growing up as children. We had other things to think about other than, you know, what was on the coins or what was on the stamp. So later on in life, when you understand the Commonwealth and the, the issues around how Britain acquired uh, status within the Commonwealth, uh, then it became, you know, slightly problematic for a lot of folks. But you see, one has to say, kind of, how do you change? You know, do you become like Barbados and you know go totally independent? 
um, all the other islands are going to follow. Um, we don't know. I'm sure at this moment there are other um, places in the world who are under Commonwealth flag are thinking of how to possibly kind of break away. But that, you know, that shift or that narrative has only come about by, I think, you know, showing that as people in Britain and as the Commonwealth who are supposed to serve and look after and protect, maybe that protection uh, isn't being provided uh, 100%. So if that doesn't, doesn't happen, then you have to take away, take away that power from the person who was, you know, the mother, so to speak, or the Commonwealth, and then you go on your own. Only time will we'll see. But going back to your question about, you know, were we really aware of the politics of it? To be honest with you, no. Um, in terms of education at school, um, we just read what we were taught, you know, and, and that was it. You know, that's all we that's all we knew. There was a naivety there because there was one. There was a lack of um, information in the school books, or again, the school books that you had weren't providing a steering point for you to learn much more. Then there are all the negative images that you had of you know people of especially people of color, you know, of the Commonwealth being this. You know, this fantastic thing where you have to, you know, do as I say, eat as I say, read as I say, speak as I say. So we didn't, um, you know, we didn't go against it. But as time goes by and we understand much more about the world, uh, we learned, you know, very rapidly that, uh, you know, the Commonwealth can be a good thing. But like anything, you know, it has its flaws. And uh, if you don't fix those flaws or fix those wounds, then it opens up and reveals much more. Do you think that's changing? Do you think in the context of, of Windrush, of Black Lives Matter, that young people are starting to think more critically about what it means to be a part of a commonwealth? I think um, these days, yes, definitely people are understanding much more because we've got the web, uh, we've got instant access to education, instant access to what's happening everywhere in the world. So, and especially young people who are, you know, the, the future, um, their understanding and wanting to know much more where a lot of their parents maybe weren't aware or they didn't want to talk about what had happened. So the young people are now looking towards how can they make societies better? How can they affect change? And what do they need to do? How do you consolidate that? How do you come together as large groupings of, of individuals and thrust forward and move forward of course, you know, you're always going to have racism there. But what I think I find interesting is that racism just doesn't only affect the person of colour. It affects all of us because if we're you know, involved in truths and rights and justice for all, um, then you have to really pull, our, pull ourselves together and see how do you make that society better? How do you investigate that? How do you probe and how do you push the government? How do you affect change, not in just your local community, but on a... A national and international basis. You know, I'm a great believer in the web and the power of the web and how that can um, instantaneously give one access to information and then you respond, you know, within a matter of minutes, seconds to it. And then that kind of mobilization of people all through the world and especially all through the Commonwealth. How does the Commonwealth and maybe the legacy of empire play out in cities like Birmingham today? Is it still having a lasting impact? I think in Birmingham, uh, there's a lot of people I've said about the Commonwealth Games and that's the what's Commonwealth? A lot of people actually don't know what's, what does Commonwealth mean, you know, realistically. So 
you know, the Commonwealth Games will, will come and as time escalates towards it, we'll know, people know much more about what's happening. Um, the older generation, uh, you know, they are much more aware of what the Commonwealth meant um, to be you know, a proud person from the Commonwealth. So Commonwealth and what it means to people in Birmingham, I think it will mean much more once the Commonwealth Games starts, uh, but more importantly, the lead up toward the Commonwealth Games. But we still need to be aware that Commonwealth and the legacy of it is actually built upon not very um, positive <laughs> elements of history. As, you know, we know what that means. Is the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham something that you're personally excited about? I'm excited about it um, because the Commonwealth Games coming to Birmingham, um, and I didn't ever think that would happen. I'd always attended a lot of the um, events down um, down in Peribar there. So us hosting it and uh, putting ourselves on the world stage, I think it's a fantastic thing. I think it's great that we've managed to achieve that goal of bringing it here because this is a city that looks towards the future. And as people, we need to look towards the future with the help of, um, you know, the council and also all of the investors. Let's just make Birmingham something that we should be proud of because it's our city. Uh, we're not going anywhere. It's supposed to be the second city. You know, for all of these people coming into the uh, city because of the Commonwealth Games, uh, uh, we need to provide much more than just bars and pubs and uh, restaurants. There has to be culture. For me, culture is all. Culture is the thing that uh, binds us as a society together. How do we ensure that the Commonwealth Games isn't just something which impacts Birmingham in 2022, but has a lasting impact on the city? I think the lasting impact of the Commonwealth Games can be felt by um, utilising all the facilities, the new facilities that have been built up. Um, you know, new housing, you know, the new sports facilities and all of the um, exterior elements that are surrounding it. Um, so, you know, you're providing jobs um, for, 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 for people. Um, you're having um, more people coming in to the city to experience what we have. Because the worst thing is people come in and then they go out again. They don't come back. So what do we do to actually encourage people to, one, stay in Birmingham, but also to keep coming back to Birmingham? And again, I'll go back to culture, but that, that cultural element is determined by the powers that be. So the city council and as all of the funders who are involved in it should be there to provide all of the facilities so that you have something to bind us together. And I keep talking about this thing about binding us together. If we're not binded together as a society, we're no good. You know, we're, we're stronger together than we are, are apart. And we know that within the city, you know, there are certain, you know, cultures who, you know, tend to, you know, stay within certain pockets, and that's totally understandable. But if we, you know, we, we're coming together, then, you know, bring the societies together, um, use all of the facilities that are here, um, you know, use all the people, use all the technical, the expertises that we have here, you know, don't throw it away. This is the greatest opportunity for us to stand up on that world stage. It's a fantastic opportunity. And if it, uh, you know, runs away and, as you say, in, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, it's just, oh, do you remember that thing that happened? Um, to me, it's, uh, you know, it's just a waste of time and something that we shouldn't um, really be trying to 
go because Commonwealth has built yourself up on looking after. Um, so the Commonwealth Games is something that should be looking after the people of Birmingham first of all, before it looks after anybody else. In the eyes of Pogus Caesar, if the Commonwealth Games are to have an enduring legacy on the city of Birmingham, then we need to look beyond sport and embrace culture. The Birmingham 2022 Festival, a six-month cultural programme shining a light on the region's thriving arts sector, seems to be a step in the right direction. But another important question is that of history. What do we do with the dark history of the Commonwealth and the British Empire that came before it? How can we take something so difficult and delicate and use it as a force for good? Marcia Dunkley is a Birmingham-born history teacher and mentor, specialising in heritage and black history. She also runs the Black Heritage Walks Network in Birmingham, which consists of a number of walks across the city that educate and celebrate the black presence in Birmingham's history. Nathan Clark spoke with Marcia at Birmingham Community Centre's Sarty House. She tells us about her parents migrating to the UK from Jamaica during the Windrush era and how the Commonwealth was portrayed to her through them when she was younger. She explains the importance of local history and black local history and what she describes as gaps in the narrative when it comes to the history we are taught in UK schools. Marcia also shares her thoughts on the Commonwealth Games and the hopes she has of new teachings and understandings that the Games coming to Birmingham will leave. When did you come to Birmingham and where did you come from? Well, yes, I I born and brought up in in Birmingham, so this is my home. Um, Essentially, my heritage is Jamaican. Both my parents came here uh, in the Windrush years in the 1950s and um, met, married and um, created a wonderful family that I'm part of. And I also see Birmingham as my family anyway. And being a British Jamaican, Jamaica obviously being part of the Commonwealth, growing up, did the Commonwealth have any relevance to you? Was it something you thought about? We were constantly um, talked uh, from my parents' heritage, their basis in terms of the contribution Jamaican, Jamaica and the Caribbean made to Britain, which so from my historical knowledge, uh, what I've been taught, the Commonwealth on its own was those countries that contributed to the wealth of Britain. And, And hence, that's why my parents always looked at Britain as the motherland, Yes, because it was that that perspective. I, I, so with the whole thing of the Commonwealth Games, having the word games attached to it signifies that there's an understanding, this is where, this is who we are, how we contributed, and we're all coming together in a unified form. Um, and essentially competing, yes, in races and in sport, but as a unified form. I'm interested in that term motherland, which your parents used. Growing up, did it feel like they were growing up in the motherland or were there challenges that were uh, which they faced in trying to build a life here in Birmingham? Definitely so. There's the obvious, you know, racial barriers and, and cultural and so on. But they were very strong people and constantly uh, indoctrinated into us. Whatever you do, become educated, gain a skill, be a positive member of the community. Um, so thankfully, we yes, we knew about this. We were slightly exposed to it, but we overcame it by becoming educated and skilled, etc. Okay, looking ahead to the Commonwealth Games, 
it seems like a good time to talk a bit about the Commonwealth and what it means. What do you think of when you hear the term Commonwealth? Yeah, so for me, Commonwealth are those countries that legally, illegally, um, rightly or wrongly, a lot of raw materials, people's toil, um, etc., was taken away from those countries to enable Britain to become Great Britain. So that's what the word Commonwealth means, and that's what it really is. Creating games from these countries, yes, you could look at it on a negative or a well positive light, Yes, they were historically what was part of the British Empire. They're not now. They've got their independence. So it's good that that aspect of it is remembered. Presenting it as games basically gives a forum for us, all those countries, to get together. Do you think it's a chance to maybe look at the history of the Commonwealth and do you hope it will spark those conversations? Definitely so, because with this, there's the knowledge of what was taken away and then the acknowledgement of what needs to be given back. And once that history is presented, you will then find a lot has to be given back as an apology. And history is something which you're very passionate about, your history teacher. Um, but you do a lot of work around uh, black history and black heritage. Yeah. Um, could you tell me a bit about that, please? What made you start that and why did you think it was important to do? Well, yes, yeah, so coming from a history teacher point of view, I always found that black history was only ever taught in October. Then that history that's taught in October was always slavery. And that was the one time that I would stand up in the staff room and say, no, we're much more than slaves. And not only that, we were enslaved. Basically, a wonderful trip to the Maritime Museum in Liverpool gave me the inspiration to create um, heritage walks in Birmingham. So I sat for many, many weeks and looked at the historical presence of our churches, our schools, our businesses, um, our shared experiences in terms of racial barriers that we had to face. And then I got in touch with two other wonderful researchers. So there's Recognise, that's from Gary Stewart, that's his cultural platform, it's called Recognise, and Dawn Carr from Legacy WM, and basically said, look at this. And it was like, wow, I learned so much about the black presence in Birmingham. And from that, it was necessary to present this wonderful research that we'd found. So we've basically compiled a series of Black Heritage Walks round Birmingham. And we've got five good walks at the moment. So there's the Mediba Walk based in Handsworth. There's the Ida B. Wells in uh, Walk in Edgebaston. We've got the 6888 Walk, which talks about the only... Um, African-American female battalion that came here in World War II and made a massive difference. We've also got the Industrial Revelation uh, Walk, which is based along the canals uh, in Birmingham, uh, especially from Brindley Place to Port Loop. Uh, please come along and uh, let's share in this wonderful history. Yes, it's a very rich history, but one which isn't really discussed or um, that local history isn't really taught in schools. No. Um, is that something which you think should be 
change. It definitely should. It needs to be so that everyone, not just black children, it's not just black children that need to know about black history, it's everyone. Because the whole balanced narrative has been missing from what's being taught in history. Um, you know, the whole history of the black Tudors and our black members of the royal family. That's massively, massively important. And what we need is, it's not a case of rewriting history. It's telling the balanced narrative and there's a lot that has been left out on purpose. Are you personally excited by the coming of the Commonwealth Games to Birmingham? Massively excited about this. I'm very proud um, that all of the heritages are coming together. And what I'm also proud of is the other things that are happening alongside the Commonwealth Games. So right now we've got a wonderful, I'd call it, project movement called The World Reimagined. And we're also part of that Black Heritage Walkses. And again, that is presenting how the world could, should have been if we didn't have the, what I call the horrors of the transatlantic slave period. What it's looking at is how we should be and the social injustices that have been faced by people who have been oppressed. So the world reimagined that going alongside the the, um, Commonwealth Games is a natural marriage as far as I'm concerned. It's very good. What do you hope the Games will do for the city of Birmingham? create that legacy, and when we say legacy, everlasting legacy, of this is a country that has gone through a journey of cultural, racial richness. We have to look at the positives of this and that we're all united, and that's the legacy. I want to see lots of art and conversations and teachings in different settings, not just in schools, in the community of we all are one people. Marcia, like many others, is excited for the Games coming to Birmingham. She sees the coming of the Games as an opportunity to diversify how we teach and talk about British history. A view shared by our next Commonwealth Stories voice. Jaspreet Singh is a PhD international student from Punjab who's been studying in Birmingham for the past eight years. He's also an award-winning campaigner and served as president of the Student Union at Birmingham City University in 2017. Like Marcia, he thinks it's time for honest and critical conversations about Birmingham's colonial past and the lasting impact it's had on Birmingham's communities, what he calls the wounds of history. He also discusses his thoughts around a lack of knowledge and teachings when it comes to Birmingham's own history. Jaspreet sat down with reporter Nathan Clark at Birmingham City University and spoke of his hopes for a wider dialogue around Birmingham's relationship with the Commonwealth. Firstly, could you just tell me a bit about your upbringing and your journey here to Birmingham today? I'm an international student from Punjab. I came to Birmingham eight years ago. And um, I think if I want to summarize it in one uh, sentence, so two, three years ago, I was um, one of the 30 under 30 in Birmingham life. I said I was born in Punjab, but I'm made in Birmingham. (laughs) So Birmingham is something which I really love. Yes, I'm here still as an international student and love being part of this beautiful, vibrant city. How do you think the Commonwealth has shaped the Birmingham we know today? I think it's interesting because personally for me, I love staying in Birmingham. The reason why, because it's very diverse. And thanks to Vaiguru Almighty, the Sikh community is quite vibrant and quite strong. So prominent international Sikh channels, so big voices, 
uh, always come out of Birmingham. So I feel blessed is in the middle of uh, England. And I think the other beautiful aspect is um, being a person from Punjab, being a Sikh, I was able to meet people from other different communities and have critical conversations. Take example, people living in Hansworth, for example, back in the days, they were able to meet people from Jamaica. Even today, there's a big dialogue uh, going on. And it's interesting that I know one of my uh, friends, uh, so they produce music, so which is a mixture of reggae and pangada. <laughs> so it's interesting this region is happening as well. Similarly, uh, on the same angle, we were able to relate about the hardships which we went through and how we come here and then actually think about the world picture. The same tools which were implemented to oppress me back home being a Sikh were also implemented on other colonial subjects uh, around the world as well. So I think that's something uh, which I really like as well. In a nutshell, really good. We get to meet each other, love each other, respect each other as we are. But then on the other side, have critical conversations in which we heal each other being uh, subjects of uh, the empire. Could you tell me a bit more about the Sikh community? Uh, what's it like here in Birmingham? Is it quite strong, quite vibrant? I think for me personally, uh, it's a great blessing. Very strong, very vibrant. And for me being an international student, very supportive. I didn't know who I am when I was back home. So after coming here, facing all the hardships, racism and all the structure barriers, something which I had to fall back upon was my community and my guru. So thanks, I have to say, thanks to them. It's only because of them. I can sit here and speak, uh, so it's a great blessing. For you personally, as a, as a Sikh, how do you relate to the history of the Commonwealth or maybe the history of empire? I think being a Sikh um, from Punjab, well, I would say history is present. I would not say it's something which has happened and I can think, okay, it's happened, I can move on. And I think history is still present. So this idea of oppression, this idea about thinking if the person is from another colour, he can be sidelined and he things can be perpetuated upon him and he will not retaliate. And I think it's still prevailing. And I think for me being a Sikh, when I met people from other different communities, the wounds of history which were there on our which are still there on our hearts. And I think they start healing uh, when we start having critical conversations and start being honest about uh, the history then I think the things become uh, much, much better. So the colonial institutions uh, within Birmingham, for example, are still there. So take example, Joseph Chamberlain, of course, very revered, very respected person in Birmingham. I didn't know much about him. Uh, but then when you start reading critically, so he was um, secretary of the colonial empire and a very prominent race supremacist and he thought actually white race is the best race in the world and loads of people like myself international students that would come to Birmingham take pictures with the take example old Joe in University of Birmingham or even uh, the Joe Monument in um, city center so even take example the Galton family uh, Quakers I didn't know much about it and one of the thanks almighty black researchers actually gave me a hint. And after that, I started researching. So the same canal which I see, being a Sikh from my university, was actually one day used to ship guns all around the globe to kill people. So I think when I start going deep into this historic argument, that's when I realized actually Birmingham was used as a powerhouse 
to oppress, kill, and then abuse people from all around the world. And I think it's interesting being an international student, these things are not at the face of Birmingham. But once you start reading, once you start going deep into it, then I realize actually the similar stuff which was happening to me being a Sikh was happening to people in Jamaica, was happening to people in Nigeria, South Africa, and all around the globe. And I think that's where I start thinking critically, why this knowledge is not explicit? So why are young people within Birmingham not taught about these things? So when we say these things, why we think, why people may think us being a bit more radical, but the reality is this knowledge should be out there so that we can make our decisions a bit better. So I've lived here for long. So yeah, I think the the bigger idea of cooperation, love, compassion um, should be there. So I think Commonwealth is interesting. So this is the time when we can have these critical conversations instead of just wishy-washy celebrations. On the topic of history, you've done quite a lot of work trying to launch an official Sikh History Month. Why did you think this is an important thing to do? Uh, so Sikh History and Appreciation Month, uh, Sikh Heritage Month, we think now. So I remember uh, we went to Parliament and presented this to APPG of Sikhs. And they were very much interested, still very interested in it. And so this idea about people being not aware of who you are, I think there are two different sides. So one is we can say people are aware, but the ignorance prevails, right? But then on the other side, people may not have information. And I think what I, what I saw being a sick walking on the streets, so take example, if I sit on a train, on a four-seater table, many people will not sit with me. I'm not saying it's my benefit, at least I'll get three seats, but I'm just saying it's actually that ignorance, that mindset. So I think for me, being a young Sikh, it's about more knowledge we have, the better it is uh, for the society. But then the more knowledge we have, the better it is for the society in a way in which we, in which we can challenge injustice and in which we can challenge the um, structural oppression which is being perpetuated on not just Sikhs, but other people as well. For me, if youngsters, if we can take pride in our heritage, then we can serve other people well as well. On the topic of the Commonwealth Games in particular, is this something which you're excited about personally? I think for me personally, being an activist as well, I'm excited, but in a way in which we can start our healing journeys. And I think this is where in Australia, for example, Commonwealth Games took place. There was a critical conversation People were having that critical conversation, but now I think in Birmingham, it's still witty-washy. For me, I understand, for example, the arguments why people do want to have Commonwealth. I do understand the arguments why people don't want Commonwealth. But I think still there needs to be a critical debate. There needs to be a dialogue. Finally, what legacy do you hope the Commonwealth Games will leave on Birmingham its communities here? So economically, people can say we would get uh, better roads, better facilities, train station, for example, very well, a really good stadium, etc., etc. Right. So really good. And I respect that argument. But then on the same side, I think being a youngster, it is getting harder for us to afford homes. The house prices are going up. So I think it will become even more harder and harder. The structural inequality is still there. And I think people are still choosing between heating and eating. Still, these conversations need to take place. And I think for me, being a student, being an international Sikh Punjabi student, I would say after Commonwealth came, so this is what I'm predicting, right? Birmingham would miss a chance to face history as it is. 
when the games may uh, come to close. I really hope, fingers crossed, Birmingham shouldn't miss this chance to have critical conversations. Is it just the wealth in just some hands and nothing else is common? Or is it a time Birmingham, which is in the middle of um, England, can be a good place which can start harmonizing conversations but with the critical dialogue and debate? And then at the same time, trying to try to help communities here as well, because we've seen two worlds, one world here, another world back in Punjab. But then this is where we can start those arguments and say, actually, this is how it impacted me. From that, we will get a better understanding of each other and better communities, I would say. Jaspreet, Marcia and Pogus all share a love for Birmingham and a sense of real excitement at the coming of the Games. But all three also realise that this is a time for reflection, a unique opportunity to engage in important conversations about the Commonwealth's complex history. In their view, only by teaching, listening and understanding can we all build towards a more positive, harmonious future. Commonwealth Stories is a laudable production, brought to you by Birmingham Live. The Commonwealth Stories podcast is available on all your favourite platforms. To keep up to date with the series and hear the latest episodes, make sure to follow and subscribe. To find out more about the upcoming Commonwealth Games and to discover more about the guests who are featured on this episode, make sure to head over to the Birmingham Live website. This is Commonwealth Stories by Birmingham Live.